It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 7th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It's no doubt that we're still in a very uncertain period in terms of the impact of Omicron. And from a HSE perspective, we remain on kind of high alert in terms of the impacts, particularly that's having on the healthcare system overall, not just our hospitals. Paul Reid, the Chief Executive Officer of the HSE, outlining the pressure the current wave of COVID is placing on health services. There's a lot of concern, but the health service chief said yesterday, it's not all doom and gloom. There's no doubt the government actions uh, in terms of restrictions and have, been, have had to be put in place have certainly helped the health service. The restrictions are helping, he said, but so too is public behaviour. The public actions in particular uh, and the way the public has taken on board those public health actions, uh, particularly throughout a difficult period in Christmas and New Year, um, I think has been great and insightful by the public how they've embraced them. Furthermore. There are strong indications, and early strong indications, uh, that the level of sickness may not be as severe, and probably not as severe as the certainly as a Delta variant. And the positivity doesn't end there. The final level of optimism particularly relates to the ICU uh, impacts. Haven't seen the severe impacts, certainly to date, uh, as we would have seen in an equivalent period last year uh, with Delta uh, hospitalizations. So very positive, uh, very positive all round. But, and there's always a but with COVID, isn't there? Paul Reid added this caveat. To qualify all of that level of optimism, that we have to balance that in the level of reality. And the level of reality is we still have and do have a healthcare system under extreme pressure. That's uh, Paul Reid, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the HSE, speaking at a press briefing yesterday. A lot of reasons uh, to be cheerful, if you like, uh, given this emergency that we're living under. There's room for positivity. Uh, And adding to that, the decision by Neffet not to recommend further restrictions. There has been a significant change, or there will be at least come the 1st of February under new Europe 
European rules, which will mean that your COVID cert will have a validity period of just nine months. And yesterday, the Minister of Health announced that those who have had their booster vaccine, your third vaccine, uh, will be able to get a new COVID cert uh, from yesterday and they'll continue to be rolled out. So far, that means 2.2 million uh, people will be entitled to a digital COVID cert. Let's uh, talk to Darren O'Rourke, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport and a a TD for Meath East, uh, because this will have implications undoubtedly for people who do want to travel uh, abroad. Uh, If you don't have one of these certs, I take it you won't be able to travel within the European Union. Well, um, we have the digital COVID cert, Michael, for for a number of of months at at this stage, and it has always been a feature of it. Um, uh, In in contrast to the way they were used in in Ireland, for example, it has always been a feature of the digital COVID cert that it would be um, an an either-or, so uh, proof of vaccination, proof of recovery, proof of a recent antigen or PCR test, and individual countries have their uh, ability to set out the criteria. It's already the case, and this is causing some concern for some people in recent days, um, the the new system is to come into place across Europe on the 1st of February, as as you've said, but some countries, uh, well, Italy in particular, has moved in advance because of the um, very difficult uh, situation there in in terms of of COVID. So they've implemented on a wide uh, basis the, the, the regime where they want you to have the, the digital COVID cert with an updated uh, booster on it and, and wouldn't accept it otherwise. So, so there is concern there that um, that you know if some people are travelling before the first of, of February that uh, that they wouldn't have their, their updated COVID cert. So um, it's it's welcome that the government are, are moving on this. We did actually raise this with them as, as far back as the beginning of, of December. And, you know, they're a little bit behind the curve. I know um, uh, uh, people who arrived uh, personally from 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 Belgium to, to Dublin uh, this week who have their, who already have their, their boosters uh, updated on their COVID cert. So, so but as a percentage of the population, you'd have to assume uh, that more Irish people are entitled uh, to one of uh, the new COVID certs uh, than would be the case in other European countries, uh, because we're at the higher end of uh, the amount of uh, people who have received a booster, are we not? Yeah, we're well in excess of 2 million people, which is really fantastic and, and credit to everybody involved in the HSE and the, the, the vaccine rollout. And I, I know um, right throughout the Christmas period, as soon as those uh, walk-in back vaccination and booster centres are open, there were queues uh, out the door, which was, you know, very... Uh, uh, very great to see uh, in terms of in terms of the uptake. Um, it, like so many cases, Michael and I know myself from working in the health service in terms of e-health and medical record numbers and single patient identifiers. We are well behind the curve in terms of the technology and in terms of the the systems uh, to have them in place compared to our other European countries. I remember as far back as the the troika coming in, Michael. It was one of the the, the issues that they raised. It it's, uh, it seems to be continuing to be the case um, that that our our IT systems are uh, our systems being able to talk to each other. Um, isn't isn't there yet? I suppose I I would also make the point that. You know, there are 2.2 million people. They got them in, in, in various settings. 
mm-hmm. you know yourself a lot of them were walk-in clinics where you know it, it was you know there were hand-taken notes I really hope that you know the, the system um, moves smoothly and that there aren't uh, issues with it I, I hope that people begin they're supposed to begin getting their, yeah. their emails from today I checked my own me- email I, I haven't received mine yet um, we'll continue to keep an eye out. Okay. We would, I, I would hope. It's a, a long time since the Troika came into the country. That's 12 years ago, in fact. Uh, and that was the IMF, uh, the European Union and the European Commission to bail out uh, the country at uh, the time of uh, the banking collapse. Uh, we are on top of uh, the vaccines. And you mentioned Italy there uh, where uh, they're obviously having problems. Uh, they're going to fine anybody who's over the age of 50 who doesn't get a vaccine. It follows uh, the Greek example of for over 60s. Uh, the French president President Emmanuel Macron uh, says he's going to hassle people who uh, don't get vaccinated. Uh, they won't be able to do anything. They won't be able to go to restaurants, pubs, clubs, libraries and so on. There'll be no social outlet for them. The American president was critically, uh, cri- equally critical of, of uh, people who are not vaccinated, as we heard earlier in the week. Uh, but there's a bit of confusion, or at least I'm confused, uh, as to these new COVID certs. Uh, will they apply only as far as Irish citizens are concerned to international travel or, or will you need to have had a booster and to have that certified if you're to go into a restaurant or a pub uh, or any of uh, the places uh, that the certs currently apply to in this country? Well, you're not on your own, Michael, in terms of, of your confusion in relation to it. I think it was the case that earlier this week, the Taoiseach uh, indicated that in due course or in good time mm. or... Uh, um, that it would be the case that the booster would be a requirement for for access uh, in the way that it it was and in, in, in the way that the digital COVID cert was in, in the past. So, in other words, you would need an updated digital COVID cert to gain access to restaurants and bars and and other indoor settings. Um, now it appears that uh, the government uh, is rolling back a little bit on that. So it's, so it's not clear at all. Yeah, let, let's hear what the Taoiseach had to say. This is uh, Micheál Martin speaking on Wednesday. In the fullness of time, uh, yes, I think, but not shorter than that. I think the HSC are now working on including uh, the booster within the, the vaccination record and, and, and cert. Now, government decisions will have to be taken then in terms of the policy application of that. Um, but it is very clear to us that the the benefits of the of the booster are very significant uh, right now in preventing infection, but also, above all, in preventing severe illness from Omicron. All right. Now, listening to me on Martin on Wednesday, I thought it was clear you're going to need to have had a booster to get a new COVID cert. You'll need a new COVID cert to get into a, a restaurant or go for a drink. Uh, but I'm reading this morning that might not be the case. Yeah, and I hear the, hear the same, Michael. So there is confusion in, in relation to it. I, I suppose I, I wouldn't make the point, and I, I know the digital COVID search were, um, you know, were, were certainly contentious, and, and um, there was a lot of issue in, in relation to them and, and their arguments for and against. One of the points that I would make is that um, a criticism we have had of the government is that they have failed miserably in relation to realizing potential antigen testing. Um and they have, you know, done a full U turn in relation to that um over the Christmas period because the, the PCR capacity was 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 excellent. But I would make the point in the weeks running up to Christmas, we were allowing people access to indoor facilities based on a digital COVID cert. In my opinion a digital COVID cert that in many cases was was quite meaningless in the sense from a public health perspective. It possibly meant that an individual had got a, 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 um, 
a, a vaccination, you know, up to eight, ten months previously. And we know that, you know, in, in the case of Johnson & Johnson, um, the, the impact of that in terms of immunity was quite limited. We know it was limited in terms of, of transmission. At the same time, we could have introduced, as they, as they do for international travel, you know, uh, uh, an antigen test uh, within 24 hours, a PCR, a very recent PCR test, which in my opinion, from a public health perspective, would actually be a, a greater barrier, a greater measure, a greater impact in terms of, of individual, you know, in terms of managing the spread of the, of the virus. So yeah. I would ask the government to consider da- that. Da- Darren, if I could just... Uh, uh, interject for a moment uh, because uh, your line suddenly deteriorated after the last clip. I'm, I'm not sure if you moved. I take it you're on a, a mobile phone. Uh, but uh, uh, we'll try to stay with you because there's a, a few interesting uh, issues, uh, I think, about how these COVID certs uh, will be given to people, uh, how you will qualify for one. Uh, and uh, again, some confusion, at least in my mind, and some questions that I'd have about that. Uh, is it right to say that if you've had yeah, if you've been doubly vaccinated, if, if you've had both of your vaccines or if you had the Johnson & Johnson, the one vaccine, uh, and you got COVID since, that you'd be entitled uh, to a COVID cert? Michael, it's, it, it was, it, it's, I'm not entirely clear, Michael, in terms of the process for acquiring a recovery. So in that case, mm. the case of a recovery cert, and there... Um, uh, far less common than the, than the, the standard digital code. Mm. There is a there is a process for availing of, of those. Um, and well, there's two um, questions that are, are obvious. I think following that, uh, which uh, would seem to me to be, what if you had a positive antigen test and you couldn't get a PCR test? And there's loads of people listening to us now going, that's what happened to me. Uh, So if you had a positive antigen, you couldn't get a PCR, so you've had COVID, uh, but it's not registered anywhere, will you get a COVID cert? Uh, Or uh, if you claim to have had a positive antigen test, how can that be disproved? Yeah, and that's a a very good point. And, and, you know, it raises the question in terms of what the digital COVID cert, what uh, is, is it going to look like in the time ahead? It's, it's going to be different than the previous version because it was more straightforward in terms of vaccinated versus unvaccinated, as is applied in Ireland. As I said, for international travel, there was always, and that was something we supported as a therapy, the option for recovery uh, cert or proof uh, of a recent negative test, whether it be antigen or, or PCR. I think given the nature of the, the booster rollout, as I said, the, the complexity in relation to that, given the change in nature of the, the, the testing regime, we've now moved to a, a more frequent and more important role for, for antigen testing, albeit relatedly. Um, and given the the changing profile of COVID within the community, you know, and, and the prospect of, of Omicron being um, far more tr- transmissible in, in fairness, but also uh, far more, uh, uh, far less harmful, uh, which, which seems to be the case. Well, then we're, we're going to need to think and reconsider the role of both testing and digital COVID circular. That is, um, your initial vaccination and your booster or recovery um, um, or an antigen test or, or recent PCR, I think that's going to have to be in, included in the type of, 
of uh, consideration that the that Neffet and the government take into 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 the weeks ahead because okay. you know yeah. as it relates to the access to, to to various facilities okay we'll leave it there uh, uh we've been plagued by a very bad phone line this morning unfortunately uh so uh, uh, apologies uh, to our listeners uh, for that and thanks uh, for bearing with us through it uh darren o'rourke Sinn Féin td for me the east to darren is uh, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport Michael Reed on LMFM. A few people in touch with us already, and thanks uh, to everybody or anybody who has been in touch so far. Good to hear from you as always. Thanks to Anne for texting us uh, this morning. Anne, obviously a little bit concerned, uh, looking for one of uh, the new COVID certs, uh, but doesn't have an email. And she says, what happens to people like me who don't have an email? Well, I gather it's uh, the same as last time around and that it will uh, be posted out to people uh, this has uh, just begun to be rolled out from yesterday and I imagine over the coming days and weeks there'll be clarity on that clarity that I don't have at the moment uh, apologies Anne but uh, hopefully uh, we'll hear uh, more about that Lily possibly in the same boat she says uh, do we all get a booster certificate now uh, as I understand it if you've had a booster yeah you get a booster certificate a new COVID certificate and under the European rules uh, they'll be valid for up to nine months. Uh, somebody else saying, if I was stupid enough to travel outside of the country, would uh, the booster cert do, as I don't have a phone that does everything but dance, just curious. Uh, thanks uh, for that uh, again. Uh, at the moment, they're being emailed, and uh, I'm not sure, Mairead, if uh, that's what you mean. Uh, I take it it's that you can't get it on your phone. That's what you mean about your phone not dancing. Uh, I presume in time uh, you'll get the paper version, uh, as was the case last time around. Pat and Navin says he reckons this is going to be a balls up, uh, unquote, uh, concerning the new COVID certs, because he says the HSE are properly linked with uh, the chemist and uh, the GPs in order to correlate people who have got boosters uh, from these places. Uh, I take it uh, that means that they're not. Uh, so how do you determine who had a booster and who didn't? Uh, it's an interesting point as well. I did hear of uh, some people who had COVID and went and got boosters, uh, even though you weren't supposed to, but there was no way of anybody identifying that you had COVID, even though you'd be registered as a positive case, uh, that you'd go to get your booster uh, and uh, they weren't cross-checking. Uh, John Navin uh, in touch with us uh, this morning about the lottery uh, and winning the lottery. Uh, I think the last time somebody won the lottery uh, was in 1921, wasn't it? <laughs> the foundation of the state. Uh, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed and uh, there was a lotto winner. Uh, I think that's uh, something that John probably understands. Uh, reading his message this morning, John, uh, thanks uh, in touch. He says, it's the unwinnable lottery. My personal opinion is that it's... <laughs> A scam. He says, I had a full 47 balls even in the draw. After the seven balls are drawn, there seems to be a lot less than 40 balls in the containers. When you compare the sizes of the balls compared to the volume of the containers, the balls seem to make too small a pile. Does anyone apart from KPMG oversee the procedure? I always felt that you may as well uh, have anybody <laughs> you could think of overseeing the lottery, uh, says John in Navin, who has absolutely no confidence in it. Uh, 
uh, I take it at this stage, uh, John, but I'm sure it's all above board. Uh, in fact, uh, the National Lottery uh, were in front of an Oireachtas committee answering questions similar to yours uh, earlier, uh, or well, actually it was last year, I was going to say earlier in the year, but uh, couldn't be earlier in the year than it is uh, this morning at the end of last year. Now, let's uh, go back to COVID. And as you've been hearing, there are some positive things about it. Uh, there seems to be a lot of evidence uh, that it's a, a mild version of coronavirus, mild disease from it. Uh, that's uh, in the majority of cases, but it's not in all cases. Yesterday, the HSE held a press briefing. And if you've been a patient in Bowmount Hospital with respiratory problems, it's possible that uh, your consultant was Professor Ross Morgan. Uh, and he was explaining yesterday that there's three categories of COVID patients who are seen to, who end up in hospital. Uh, they, they split roughly along the vaccination and unvaccinated lines, as one would imagine. Um, for people who are unvaccinated, uh, the condition of COVID pneumonitis, which is where they get acute lung injury uh, from this virus, uh, which gets down to the lower airway passages and causes a very severe respiratory failure, uh, those patients look the same as the first patients I saw uh, here in March and April of 2020. Uh, they have the same level of severity of lung injury, of oxygenation impairment. Um, and unfortunately, uh, many of them end up on high, end, high level of respiratory support and ultimately in the ICU. Thankfully, that number is fewer as most of our population, as we've heard about, has been vaccinated. And I suppose that's the benefit of the vaccines. Uh, the unvaccinated, then the first of those three categories of patients who, the professor said, need hospital care for COVID. Professor Morgan explaining that it is the unvaccinated who tend to be the sickest of all and most likely to need ICU care. The other two categories are in uh, of patients that we are seeing admitted at present are uh, those who are vaccinated, perhaps uh, not completely with regard to boostering. Um, some of them will have a shorter length of stay, thankfully, because the illness is less severe in vaccinated individuals. Uh, some of them have complications of the virus or potential complications of the virus, for example, uh, blood clotting and blood clot conditions, uh, pulmonary emboli. Um, and those, uh, those uh, conditions are obviously a, an extra um, burden on diagnostic services, so for instance, CT scanners in the hospital and access to those. Uh, the, the, the second group of, of vaccinated patients are a very unfortunate group because um, they are vaccinated but have underlying medical conditions. Perhaps they are immunocompromised in some way. Um, they might be immunocompromised because they're undergoing treatment for cancer uh, or radiation treatment for cancer, or they're on medicines and medications to uh, suppress their, their immune system uh, because of an underlying condition that they have. Um, they may also be medically vulnerable for other reasons, such as chronic lung disease or heart disease or kidney disease. And unfortunately, they're a large burden of uh, patients in our population. Uh, and they're, uh, I guess, unlucky um, in, the, in the main because the virus is circulating at such a high incidence, as we know, um, that they have been in contact with it. And while it has reduced the severity of illness for many, there are still large cohorts of those patients who unfortunately have acquired this virus. Terrible. Uh, the consequence of that, though, is one that doctors have always had to deal with, even before COVID. We would normally see at this time of the year a large up. up take in patients who present with 
decompensation or what we call, I, I like to call uh, lung attacks. I think everybody is familiar with a, a heart attack. It's a fairly common term we use, but um, the, the concept of a lung attack for people with chronic lung disease, for instance, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD or asthma, um, that uh, can end, end them up in hospital this time of year, often virally induced. So those patients have COVID-19 associated exacerbations of their illnesses at present. And naturally, when they're in the hospital then, so this uh, thousand or so patients or a little under that at present, I think I heard the numbers today, um, those patients need to be managed in particular environments in the hospital that might reduce transmission to other vulnerable patients in the hospital and to staff indeed. So, severe illness, I think, not what any of us would call a mild dose of COVID. Nobody in Ireland is hospitalised with mild anything. Uh, well, why would you be hospitalized with mild anything? We spend a lot of time trying to uh, uh, work on ambulatory models of care and keeping people out of hospital. So if you're in hospital with this condition, you're sick. Uh, and most of the people in hospital with this condition are sick with this virus. Because of the level of uh, incidence uh, and circulation, uh, there are patients in hospital that I see uh, that are in for other reasons who happen to have COVID as perhaps a... a, a uh, a bystander, uh, hopefully for some of them, um, but nonetheless they, they remain a, a very large challenge. Um, I guess to, to reflect on those three categories I mentioned, uh, the unvaccinated patient, uh, fewer than this time last year, fewer than March of 2020, uh, fewer, the numbers are fewer, but for every patient in the ICU we probably have two behind them in what we would call an orange zone of high uh, oxygen requirement. Often these patients are um, very sick, very breathless, uh, are on um, uh, high-end respiratory supports. Um, we would call them CPAP and oxygen high-flow devices. So there's probably, um, I think his column uh, showed, demonstrated in the slide there uh, for, the, um, for the patients who are in the ICU, there's probably two, uh, it's a two to one in terms of the patients who are in this orange zone. We've learned a lot about how to manage unvaccinated COVID-19 because we've been looking at it for two years. Uh, and so we try to avert ICU admissions, obviously, to save that resource, which is uh, precious and limited. Uh, so these patients are managed in other areas of the hospital with appropriate respiratory uh, uh, intervention from uh, nursing and, and uh, multidisciplinary teams. Um, and unfortunately, those patients uh, end up, about 50% of them, we can avoid a, a transfer to the ICU for them. And then some of them who end up in the ICU, unfortunately, uh, don't survive their illness. The other category of patients, as I mentioned, um, we're learning also how to manage them a little bit better. It's sobering, isn't it? Uh, COVID has been a, a learning curve for the best doctors in the world. And Professor Morgan makes uh, the point that there's still more for them to learn. It is uh, early enough in the, I guess, the most recent wave of this virus uh, that we've become all very familiar with, um, with Omicron, that uh, uh, we're not certain whether all of the complications that arose in the first and the second uh, wave of this virus that led to blood clotting 
conditions being much higher and other, um, as we would call it, extra or outside of the lung effects of this virus. We're not certain if that will be the same. I obviously, we have to be very cautious and, and watch that, that space. Um, many people have, uh, have been exposed to this virus, obviously, in the community, and uh, thank, thankfully most are vaccinated, and so the, con the condition seems to be mild. But with the volume of patients, I suppose, uh, that even that small number at this time of the year, uh, when I say small number, it's not a small number, but that thousand patients or so in hospital at this time of the year is massively challenging for the, for the, for the services on the ground. That's uh, Professor Ross Morgan. He's a consultant at Bowmount Hospital, a respiratory consultant, and he was speaking yesterday at a HSE press briefing. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Getting sponsorship uh, for a club is one thing. Some people will tell you it's very difficult to get a sponsorship. Turning it down is another thing. It's a big step. Uh, Trotter United has decided to take the big step and turn down sponsorship. That's sponsorship that relates to gambling. Let's speak to the chairperson of Drogheda United, Connor Hoy, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Connor, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us about this big step that the club is taking. Yeah, morning, Michael. So really, this this is off the back of what we see as the, you know, the the inextricable link that seems to have been built between gambling and, and football and certainly we see it in the UK. I think if you sit down to watch a match in the Premier League now, you see adverts of fellows going to the match or sitting in the pub or sitting on the couch and having a bet while they're watching the match and how the two that betting and football are synonymous. And, and really, you know, we feel that this is raising a, a generation of children who, who see that football and, and betting are completely interlinked in the same thing. And we think that's creating an epidemic of, of gambling that we're on the cusp of. Now, I think it's a lot worse in the UK. I think it's coming more and more pervasive here in Ireland. Um, what we're seeing is a trend in Europe, in Spain and Italy. They've banned um, gambling sponsorship on shirts. I think it's coming in the UK because it is so apparent this is a major issue. Gambling addiction, poor mental health, suicide, etc. And I think in the League of Ireland, um, we need to, to, to step up as clubs. We're a community-based league. We're, we're, you know, we're run by volunteers. We're all about family and people enjoying football. I think we have to stand up to this influence of, of betting companies that everybody believes that betting and football are the same thing. They're not. Football is a beautiful game. The League of Ireland is a beautiful league and has a great product. We don't need it to be infected by gambling companies. And the big step is uh, this campaign that aims to kick gambling out of football. Uh, Drogheda, I beg your pardon, Drogheda United is uh, the first League of Ireland club uh, to join the big step. We are, but um, I should just say, first of all, that the, the Football Association of Ireland, our governing body, has turned down major gambling sponsorship for the national team, right? So we are following the lead of our governing body here in Ireland and a number of other clubs, Pats, uh, Finn Harps, etc., I know have turned down major gambling sponsorship too. So, you know, it is, uh, we're, we're, we're not the only club who feels like this, and I think a lot of clubs are on our side. Bohemians used to be sponsored by a gambling company. They've now pushed that away and are not doing that anymore. So, you know, I, I think there's a huge amount of support actually for this across the league. And what I want to see is not just Rod United, but I want the league to self-regulate. And rather than waiting for government, which I think would be waiting forever, to try and tell us what to do on this, um, I think we should be self-regulating and actually taking a stance because 
I think it's the right thing for the league to do in Ireland. I think it's the right thing for us as a club to do in Ireland. It's morally the right thing, but it also mm. reflects the values of us as a league, and I think that's really important. Okay, and why do you think that? What's feeding your thought process? Uh, have you personal experience, or have you come across problems related to gambling firsthand? Um, well, you know, it, it, it is something I'm, you know, personally I haven't suffered from, it, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I've, look, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, you know, have I, have I had the odd bet in the past? Of course, and I do bet occasionally, you know, but it's, it's about how um, this, this constant flow of advert, and I, I, of advertising on, on gambling. And what I saw was the story of a lady uh, in the UK called Annie Ashton, and Annie's husband, uh, Luke, um, during lockdown, um, was furloughed in his job, and and uh, and he um, ended up becoming uh, addicted to online gambling, and he committed suicide, leaving Annie with two young sons to look after. And that, and that story really hit me pretty hard. And uh, and I've seen that led me to understand what the big step is doing as a campaign in the UK to try and push the gambling, uh, the, the 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 banning of gambling uh, advertising in football. And I think when you see firsthand these stories. You, you realize how dangerous gambling addiction is. There's 50,000 people in Ireland who are addicted to gambling, and they're 15, 15 times more likely to commit suicide than anybody else. So when you start looking at these statistics, you start thinking, you know, if we do one thing here today through this campaign that ends up reducing gambling addiction and saves a life, it's, mm. worth, it's worth it. And I, and I think yeah. you know, it's amazing, Michael. I just want to say one other thing. You know, um, one of my, one of my uh, a close friend uh, phoned me after I was on the radio earlier this morning but he said that his son in his early 20s had had racked up a 5,000 gambling debt through online gambling and football and he had to help bail him out and it really was a, a major hardship for them as a family and it's when people then suddenly start coming out and telling you these things you realise that particularly teenage teenagers and, 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 and kids in the, and, and young men in their 20s how, how pervasive this is in society you know I watched a comedy show on Sky the other night and it's sponsored by Sky Bet, the comedy show. This wasn't mm. football channel. Mm. So we you know, it is everywhere and we really have to try and think about the mental health of children in this country and young men and young women in this country. And I think if you and, get to a, a really, certain age uh, that uh, at that stage uh, you know that the bookie always wins uh, and that's even if you enjoy the odd flutter as uh, it's uh, termed. Uh, but uh, Gambling has always been there. It's always been a problem for some, uh, quite often a a majority. That problem, though, seems to have worsened, and particularly with young people in the modern world that we live in with the Internet, and particularly because of phones uh, and how those phones are being used uh, by the bookies. uh, And uh, you take out your first bet and they give you 10 uh, euro. uh, And God love anybody who wins on their first bet as well, because I think that quite often is where the problem starts, because you think you can always win. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, we're not calling for a ban on gambling. That's just mm. silly, right? Gambling has yeah. always been around. You ban things, they go underground, right? You know, so gambling, you know, do, do, do I occasionally go to a race and have a bet? Yes, I do, right? I always have done and I enjoy it, right? So it's, it's how uh, incredibly in your face this has become and how it's training people to think that sport and gambling you know, you can't have one without the other. The rocket that went up recently, Elon Musk's rocket, which was backed by another billionaire who went up into space. What did he do when he was up in space? I can't remember the gentleman's name. 
He placed a bet on a football match with a casino in Las Vegas. This incredible human endeavor to get into space, to build rockets, to do that. What does he do when he's up there? Mm. He places a bet with, because it's the first bet placed from space. My heart sunk when I saw the brilliance of humanity in doing this and then how they can sink so low to the other end. And, and, and I just thought to myself, like, we've, we've got, you know, it's all about doing little things here. I'm not going to change the world on this, neither is Drogba United. But if we stand up and do the right thing here, maybe there's another club will do the same thing. And maybe there'll be somebody somewhere who thinks, i got to watch out for my son or my daughter here on this and, and keep an eye out for problem gambling. And, and I think we all just have to wake up to this. Gerard Isaacman, was it? Pardon? Gerard Isaacman. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly who it yeah. was. Yeah, mm. I, I couldn't. He was an amazing man, a self-made billionaire, a phenomenal engineer, mm. like an amazing guy. And that's what he did when he went up into space. Yeah. Like you, you, you look at yourself and you think, "My God, is is that what where we've come as as, as a society?" And as as I say, uh, it, it was it was mm. a real moment for me. Seeing and that, especially you know, when but, you put it into the context that you did a, a short while ago, Connor, about people losing their lives. Uh, that uh, man that you yeah. spoke about, and he wouldn't be the first. And uh, it's all too prevalent. Uh, but it's not just uh, at that extreme end. It's the five thousand euro that you told us about, and it's all of the steps in between where people end up yeah. losing their house and so on. Yes, yeah, dreadful. Mm. And yeah. you know, and you know, one of my colleagues, uh, jo- Joanna Barnes, a councillor in Drogheda. You know, Joanne has told me about the amount of people she has come across just in Drada mm. with severe gambling addiction problems and the impact that it has on the families um, and on the individuals themselves. And it is horrific. Mm. Now, what we're trying to do here is just is to just try and tone this whole thing down. And, and we don't need, you know, we don't need that gambling sponsorship in our in our in our sport. You know, as I say, football is beautiful. We have turned down two approaches from gambling companies uh, to be a front of shirt sponsor. Now, that was tough, Michael, because, mm. you know, they were offering me three or four times mm. what we're getting from uh, the shirt sponsor we're about to announce the next couple of weeks. But I know that instead we're going to go with a local company who's employing people locally, who helps people locally. The other shirt sponsors we have, Anglo Printers, Blackstone Motors, local companies with Turkish Airlines as well internationally, which is great. Mm. But, you know, when you're a community-based club, and you've got values. You have to stand up for those values. Yeah, and it's a principal position right. that you're taking, and uh, I think uh, we all applaud you for that. And well done to draw to United. Uh, has it got uh, the support of the players and across the club? Yeah, I think um, uh, you know. I'm actually going down to see the players tonight yeah. to talk to them about it. We're in pre-season training, and uh, you know, and uh, but uh, you know, I know a number of the players have spoke to me about how actually um, gambling addiction is quite an issue across players in the league as well. And I know it's something that the the PFAI, the Professional Players Association, certainly looked at in the past, and there's certainly support networks there for them. But, you know, you're right. I mean, with again, players are young men, you know, with a few, you know, and, and, and you know, who are tempted by gambling as well. So it's something we have to be very much aware of there. But, but look, more, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, as I say, it's a principal stand by the mm. club. I hope it's adopted by other teams in the league. It's well, something we're it. raising yep. with the, the National League Committee, um, which is chaired by Dermot Ahern and uh, the former Minister for Foreign mm-hmm. Affairs. And it's on, it's on the agenda for all the clubs to discuss it in the next few weeks. Very good. Well, Drogheda United, uh, the first league of Ireland club to join the big step. Uh, undoubtedly, it won't 
won't be uh, the last club uh, and uh, well done leading the way and uh, well done on taking that position and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning Connor. Connor Hoey is uh, the chairperson of Drogheda United. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now the IFA says uh, that the government and various state agencies are sitting on their hands in terms of uh, protecting sheep from attacks by dogs. Let's hear from the IFA's sheep chairman Sean Dennehy. Uh, Good morning to you Sean and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, There was a number of kills over Christmas I understand from your statements. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on. Um, we had one attack um, in one of the counties that had over 30 sheep killed. And uh, this is an ongoing problem in every county, all you know, all across the year. And uh, we have met the Minister uh, McConnell Logan, we have met Minister Noonan. And so far, we haven't made any progress in that area of getting more uh, more stringent controls for people that leave, leave their dogs uh, attached sheep. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's an area that, that, that is a huge concern for farmers and, and it's very traumatic for the farmers that have sheep attacks. Like last mm. year, there was 241 dog attacks and out of the, out of and at that, even at that rate of going, there were only, uh, there, were, there weren't it's way under-reported, and there was only 82 prosecutions last year, and uh, 198 dogs seized. So it, mm. it, it's a huge problem for farmers. Is that problem recognised by government? I, I, I think that the look, the government it can't, but know that it is a problem for us because mm. we. Well, have I think we all do. I mean, sorry, it was kind of a rhetorical question, John. But I just wonder if it's recognised that there's a problem and there's solutions uh, because you've uh, recommended a, a number of solutions. Is there a disconnect between the problem and how government can act to stop that problem? Is there a disconnect between the problem? There, there is. Yes, there is. And I, I think the, that the government agencies, um, you know, they have it in their remit to have, to do way more than, than what they're doing. Um, you know, the law states that you need to have a, a licence and a dog, uh, have your dog microchipped. Your mm. dog must be kept under control. And and, and you've looked at that. that. You've, you've some really fascinating statistics about how that's playing out in real life. Yeah, we do, and and we did a trial uh, a number of years ago, and, and and at that stage we reckoned that there was about three to four hundred dog attacks a year, and in in those dog attacks there was a, an average of eleven sheep killed or injured, and when you translate that in, into current economics, that 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 attack could be costing a farmer, it could be costing a farmer three or four thousand euros, and 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 mm. and, and ten sheep being killed or injured while it's traumatic there is more and more serious attacks you know Mm. they're way bigger than that and a huge economic loss but that's not to undermine uh, you know the traumatic effect of even having one sheep killed because it is a a traumatic effect on on the farmer and his family and and on our farmer's incomes but you estimate there's what, 800,000 dogs in the country? That's a, a lot of dogs. 800,000 dogs, each of them should have a, a, a licence, but that's not the case, is it? No, that's not the case. There's, there's 207,000 dogs 
that that are are traceable and have a license and are right and correct. Like w- when you go back to the farming and the things, we have seven million cattle in the country, and e- each one of those has a passport and are identified, have their own individual number, and and there's new legislation coming in this year where those animals have to be electronically tagged. You go over to the sheep side, we've we've two point six million yos. All of those yos are electronically identified. All their lambs are electronically identified. You have the same in poultry, uh, pigs and equine. So, like, we're really falling down on the, on the dog end of things here. And, you know, the 600,000 dogs that cannot be identified or don't have identification. And, you know, at this stage, the, you know, the men and women on that, the ground... That, that means one, one in four dogs in the country is not licensed. It's it's actually one one in four dogs are 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 licensed. Oh, you know, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Three, three out of every four, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, a bit, a bit, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. Uh, three, exactly the point. Three and four are not licensed. Yeah. That's yeah. A, but but how is that? I mean, you're required by law to have a license. I I, I suppose it's you know the. the when you get down into the nitty gritty of it, the local authorities are responsible for for this, and you know they're the ones that appoint the dog wardens, they're the ones that provide the dog shelters, and have the power to seize dogs and and court proceedings and and do on the spot fines. They ha- have it within their remit, and I I we've met with the local authorities and we've put this case to them that they that they have. You know that they have it within their remit to do to do very good things in this way and and, and to make it attractive for people to 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 have their dog license and have their dog microchipped. Um, a, a few months ago, I came across a dog in, in a local town, and I was I knew he didn't look where he was. He he wasn't in his place where he should be. A border collie dog, which that 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 uh, had strayed, mm. and when I picked him up. He was microchipped, and he was able to be reunited with his with his owner. Hmm. So you know, there's there's forest, and you, we can make it more attractive for people to to actually go away and be within the law. Hmm. Like in other countries, there's uh, you know the, there's different rules in other countries, and you know in other countries you have to do a course to actually own a dog. In some countries, I'm not, I'm not advocating that, but you know that's the extreme in other countries, and hmm. even in the UK. Uh, and Scotland, there's a way stricter fines for people that don't keep their dogs under control and that their dogs do damage to to livestock or, or to other animals or other dogs. There's a way stricter controls and a way more stringent fines as a deterrent. Right. Uh, are you a crank? Or do you think that some people would regard you to be a crank because uh, you want dogs to be controlled? Um, it's the first time anyone has ever called me a crank. Mm. I don't think any farmer would call me a crank no, anyway. I, but, but um, I, yeah, I, I, no, I mean, I, I think that there, that there is an attitude. It doesn't matter. It's just a dog. We all love our dogs. Uh, but I, I think farmers also love their dogs. Uh, and uh, yes, please don't, uh, please don't take farmers. offense by the question. But I, I, I'm asking you the question because I, I think some people hear uh, conversations like this as uh, they're just cranks. No, we're not. We're not cranks, and um, the farmer. We, uh, as IFA chairman, I represent sheep farmers, mm. and this we have thirty-four thousand members, uh, thirty-four thousand sheep farmers, and th- 
those uh, you can you could I could almost go to any one of those sheep farmers, and every one of them at some stage would have had experienced a dog attack hmm. in different severities, hmm. and you know people love their dogs. Hmm. We love our animals as well, and if if anyone saw the aftermath of a, do- a dog attack, they'd be horrified. Hmm. The the injuries the blood, bloodbath. It is a bloodbath. Mm. Ab- they're absolutely torn to shreds and they're heavily pregnant mm. and they're going to be lambing in a few weeks. The, the effect it has on, on the husband and the mm. wife and the children and the extended family and on the sheep themselves is okay. absolutely horrendous. But no matter how horrendous it is, I, I think no matter how well you explain it to us and you're explaining it very well, Sean, I think there's people listening to us saying, oh, he's just a, a crank. Uh, because, I mean, if you go up to the Coolies, for example, uh, where there's been one kill after another and it's going on for years, uh, you, you can't go by uh, five houses without dogs on the loose. There, there's dogs on the loose everywhere, it seems. That, uh, and look, there is... A lot of dogs aren't on the loose, I would say. Most most dogs are kept under control. But it's the small minor- majority, the small minority of people that don't control their dogs that give, that, that cause these problems. And, and we've experienced uh, where there has been sheep kills one year and the following year, those dogs will be put down. Mm. And the following year, the, the same people that owned the dogs that created the problem the first time buy more dogs and they go on to create, to, to do damage again. So, mm. you know, I, I won't apologise for anything. Yeah. If, if, if people think I'm a crank, I'm a crank. No, but, uh, no I, I don't, but, uh, you know. I, I don't take it, yeah. as, I'm not taking it as an insult. Yeah, but yeah. Look, it, no, I, 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 and I'm not, I'm not really making that point to you. It's uh, kind of a, an indirect way of talking to the people yeah. who might say that. I mean, I, I think it's the mindset and I think uh, that there's probably an argument for the people to have a, a license uh, if they're fit to have a dog rather than the dog to be licensed. Uh, because it, it is this kind of mindset uh, that you let the dog out, the dog uh, creates all sorts of havoc, killing and frightening sheep, uh, and the dog is put down. You get another dog and allow it to do the same thing. Uh, there's no winners I- in that. Uh, but it's the same kind of mindset that uh, allows a, a dog uh, to litter the streets of all of the towns in the country. Uh, there's a certain attitude towards dogs where um, there's something wrong with you if you give out about them or if you think that there should be some sort of control over them. A, a dog is the same as... Uh, you need a dog You need a dog licence to have a dog. But you should actually have a licence uh, to own a dog. Uh, if you were to get... When you get a, a car licence... You go out and you get your, you do your driving tests. You you have your learner's license. You have your end plates, and then you get a full license. I'm not advocating that as a stepping stone, but mm. I, I I think you you know there should be something that you know that 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 uh, people. People have to be responsible. Mm. And, and well, well talk, talk about the example that you gave us a few moments ago. Somebody's dog kills uh, a number of sheep. Uh, the dog is put down. Uh, should, should, shouldn't it be a case that they're not allowed to get another dog? They're not fit to have a dog. The, 
they're not fit to have a dog. No, I wouldn't think they're fit to have a dog. There, there is certain cases where accidents do happen and dogs break out of their their the environment they're in. Of course. And, mm. uh, and mm. they should be the exception rather than it happening every second minute our dogs loose all over the place mm. and not kept within... If, if everybody kept their dog within their property mm. and kept their dog on a lead when they went out on the streets or and and took their you know their their litter bags with them, mm. there wouldn't be a bother. But and and you you know Sean and I suppose everybody listening to us knows as well uh, the kind of people the kind of problems that you're talking about and that before the kills take place, uh, I think it's quite typical that people ask the owner of the dog to keep it under control. They bring it to their attention. They say it's causing problems and so on. And it's all ignored. And there's, um, ah, God, well, look, you know, what if you want me to do? I'm not going to lock up my dog and all that sort of stuff, uh, despite the consequences. Um, just to give you an idea of where we are at the moment, the IFA, at the start of last year, we launched, we launched a no-dogs campaign, a no-dogs-allowed campaign. Mm. And that was aimed at people who, who are persistently taking dogs onto farmland and not keeping their dogs under control. We had a situation where in a lot of, you know, and this has happened especially since COVID, that people have taken their, their dogs out to the countryside, they've come out from the towns and taken their dog out for exercise. But when they're in the countryside, they think that you can take your dog off the lead and leave them roam around. And if you run down the, the the hill or down the field after a few sheep sure, he, sure he's not doing any harm but mm. he, is, he is actually doing harm and you have to keep your dog under control and we we t- we were our, some of our members were being abused on, on a constant basis weekend after weekend and, and during the weekdays when they when they came up to people and said you have to keep your dog under control or get off my land you're not allowed on here with a, with a dog and they were being abused so we we took the stance that we didn't want any dogs allowed on farmland, and and, and it, it it wasn't taken lightly. We we those people think that they have a right to go wherever they want, but farmers own the land, and we are trying to farm that land. And in some cases, that land isn't the best land, and we're trying to 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 make a living out of out of very uh, marginal land and very marginal, uh, you know, enterprises as well, where where the value of that land mightn't be as much as, as what it would be in other enterprises or, or other... It doesn't make as much money. Yeah. But, uh, you know, our, our members were being abused and, and we had to take that stance of no dogs allowed yeah. on farmland. OK. It's a, a terrible situation, but uh, I suppose uh, it is as a result of a, a sense of entitlement and selfishness and disregard uh, that people have for other people and uh, their property and their animals and so on. Uh, Sean? So what we would like to see is, uh, yeah. like, you know, the, there is solutions for this problem yeah. and the, the government and the local authorities have have it within their remit. We're looking for a single database and more sanctions for for non-compliance of the microchips and and more stringent fines as well for people that allow their dogs to do damage. Okay, uh, and uh, to make sure that people fulfil the obligations that they have to their dogs. Sean, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us on the programme. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank, thank you. you indeed. Sean Dennehy is uh, the Irish Farmers Association Sheep Chairman. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Funny, just thinking while uh, you were listening to us uh, live uh, this morning, if you are listening to us live uh, at the moment, you were just listening to an ad break. Uh, there'll be people listening to us later, listening to exactly what I'm saying now, uh, and they won't have heard the ad break. Uh, they'll be listening to it on the internet uh, as a podcast, uh, which is kind of a, an odd situation for a radio station because it's the ads that fund the radio station to turn the lights on, to get the transmitter going, to pay the wages, and so on and so forth. And uh, when the internet takes over, as invariably it will, what will happen then if there's no ads like that? Or, or will there be ads on the internet? Or how will it all work? Well, uh, there's a lot of questions such as that, uh, including uh, how RTE will be funded into the future, how local radio stations uh, will continue, and local newspapers for that matter. Uh, The answers to this uh, should be contained in a report called uh, The Future of Media Commission, uh, which is looking at uh, the future of public service broadcasting. It's complete at a cost of €420,000 and it's been with the government since last October. Uh, Fianna Fáil wants uh, this report to be published now. Uh, let's speak uh, to Shane Castles, uh, who's a Fianna Fáil senator and he's a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media and on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. There's a, a lot of big questions. I, I'm not sure uh, if there are answers or if those answers are contained in this report. Yeah, good morning, Michael. And I think you've you've set it out really, really well there in terms of the huge areas uh, that this is going to cover. Um, I suppose for a lot of people listening, you know, they might be might be saying to each other, "Well, how is this relevant to me?" Uh, well, I think a very simple way of putting that is just before Christmas, um, the representatives of the independent local radio stations came before us a committee uh, represented by John Purcell, who's a presenter himself uh, from the southeast. And he made the point that only for uh, the supports that were put in place, uh, all the radio stations in this country came critically close to closing, uh, such as the perilous situation in terms of funding at the moment. I think he spelled out that on average, a, a station like LMF would cost over maybe €2 million Euro, uh, per year to run a station like that, but that revenues had dropped some 20 to 30%. And the reality is, if, if, if the stations close, if local papers close, a part of local democracy dies as well. Uh, and that's the conversation that we're having at the moment. Quite frankly, from my point of view, it's been going on too long, the conversation. Uh, I want to see that report published. Uh, I want to see what's in it. As you said, maybe it doesn't create all, or give us all the answers. It, you know, there's no point mm-hmm. having a report if it only gives us a, a synopsis of what's wrong, which we know ourselves already. Uh, and I think we do need to grapple with this conversation of how we fund uh, media it's something also that I brought up in the context um, just before the Christmas with the Minister as well in the, in the Shannon on the basis that, and you said it out there in terms of the internet, Facebook uh, in Ireland published their operating profits uh, from 2020 just before Christmas as well. They're making a profit of nearly a billion a year now in Ireland. Uh, and we can see where the advertising money is going. In fact, they're actually trying to cannibalise what's left of the traditional media where they're taking out full-page ads now mm. in the, the broadsheet newspapers and saying, come advertise with us, here's where you're going to get your best bang for your buck. You know, so, I mean, we need to have a proper and serious conversation. And, and it's hard uh, to argue with it. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I think to some degree we're on borrowed time, and that's why I said it. I don't know if there's answers uh, to these questions. And this is something that's very close to your heart. Uh, you have a, a background in local media. Yeah, absolutely. I... I spent a, a long number of years working in, 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 in local publications with the Drawing Independent Group there and the Fingal Independent. Uh, and so I know the value 
of of local media. I think anyone listening to this show knows the value of local media in terms of you holding uh, local politicians, local uh, business people to account as well. Imagine a scenario where that's gone. Mm. Imagine a scenario where our local newspapers are gone. That part of democracy dies. But it doesn't exist. It actually doesn't exist for a lot of people who get all of their information on the internet at the moment. Well, this is a conversation we had then, Michael, in terms mm. of the actual veracity and, the, and, the, and in terms of what they're getting and how they're getting their news. Look at yesterday, the year on from the riots in Capitol Hill yesterday. 33% of the people over there still think that the American election was robbed by yeah. Joe Biden. What does that say about their democracy? So I think we live in a pretty good democracy where the, the information that they're getting from shows like yours or from Orti or whatever is trusted and, and, and research has shown that the news that they get from local media is a trusted news source. Uh, so that's the importance of this. We know that the funding models are broken. So we need to have a look at that and say, right, in terms of the interjection uh, by government. Now, not everyone agrees across the board. Mm. I remember raising this in the early days of this particular term uh, with now Tarnish and Minister for Business, Leo Varadkar, uh, as did several other people. And he was kind of of the attitude, let's leave it to the free market, lads. It'll work itself out. We leave it to the free market. A mm. lot of units are going to die like they have in the UK, where there's a mass closure of independent local media. Uh, I think he's changed his tune on that. I think his own party have gotten us back and say, hang on a second, there is a huge role for independent local media in this country. Uh, but we need to look at the funding model and that maybe that looks in terms of the sharing of the, the, the money that is collected. So, for example, the Sound and uh, Vision Fund allocated some €3.5 million euro, uh, to local radio stations yeah. over the last year and a half, which kept local radio stations afloat. The same fund doesn't exist for local newspapers, which is where I cut my teeth in journalism, mm. that doesn't exist for them. And they're in a very uh, uh, perilous and precarious situation as well. Yeah. There's no doubt, uh, and I don't want to be a turkey voting for Christmas, but if nobody is listening, is there any argument for funding radio stations? I mean, if nobody is listening to them in the sense that we understand local radio to be now... uh, in time uh, and that everybody gets their information off the internet uh, I mean are we into the sort of argument about why bother uh, funding TG Cahir or the uh, concert orchestra or all those sort of things if they're if they're only for a minority of people and they cost a huge amount of money Okay, well, I think that the listenership figures for uh, independent local radio when they're published show that, the, that there, there are mm. people listening in, in huge swathes. Of course, as you know and I know, uh, the operating costs uh, have to be met in terms of advertising revenue, which you said at the outset. Mm. That, that's, where, that's where the crux is in this. So then we get into the conversation of, is there a value? Of course there's a value. Of course there's a value to making sure that there's local accountability for what's happening. Otherwise, it damages our local democracy. No more than the debates about, as you said, the concert orchestra or anything else. Mm. There's a value to our society. It then comes down to what value do we put in it as a society and are we prepared to fund it? A lot of the people that have come before us in the committee, uh, and you look at the likes of Virgin Media, TG4, or whatever, and they have said, look, we need to break the model, start again, and see how the funding is allocated. That it wasn't fair that RT took such a huge share of the pot every time. Uh, and, you know, they haven't been able to collect the actual, or the, those in charge of the state haven't been able to collect the fee either. Like, there's 50 million euro lost every single annum from uh, evasion of the fee as well. So I think we, the report in itself, and from what's leaked already, I think that, that that's shown to be the case. That mm. has to be looked at 
uh, and see how we're going to fund this into the future. Well, RTE is in that very envious position of it being dual funded. Uh, it has yeah. the ads and plenty of ads, as uh, people will tell you, because they can get quite frustrated whether it's on the telly or the radio uh, listening to the ads. Uh, and then, of course, they get the licence fee. But they say they can't afford to run the service as it stands. Yeah, they get they get around two hundred million euro per annum off the license fee, and they get something similar, just a little bit less uh, from the advertising streams as well. But of course, as you said at the outset of your show, people will listen to your show now on the podcast without the ads. People are using RT a lot more now from their streaming services as well, uh, and so people have changed their habits and how they actually access something. They mightn't listen to this show live but they might listen to it at 11 o'clock at night with a cup of tea or whatever. The same is happening with RTE mm. and they're having to change their advertising strategy as a result. Um, I think there's a huge onus not just on the stage, not just on this report that's going to be published but on getting everyone into the room. That's why we've been doing this at the media um, committee chaired by Neve Smith who I know has been on your show getting these people into the room and actually asking them their opinion on how things should be done. I don't think this report's going to be the silver bullet and telling everybody this is how we're going to save the media in this country. I think we need to get the... That's why we've been getting the players into the room and asking them their opinions as well. Uh, because if we want to value local media and national media in this country, well, then we're going to have to have a serious conversation about how we save it. OK, well, you'd like to see this report, obviously. Absolutely. It's been too long. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the Minister's desk since October. I've said this to ourselves. I understand that it's going to pose some difficult questions. But I've been saying this for years. I've had this debate with you before when I was in the PAC in terms of when RTE came before the Public Accounts Committee. They talked about licence fee evasion. If there is an issue to grapple with, whether it be the broadcasting charge, call it what you like, let's have the conversation. Let's have the conversation about how we actually fund RTE because I think that seems to be the real kind of sticking point maybe for why this report isn't getting out in there into the public. Let, let's get it into the Dáil Chamber. Let's get it into the Shannon Chamber. Let's have a proper debate and then let's get it into the public as well. But get it off the desk of the Minister because the longer this goes on the more precarious it becomes for funding media in this country. People mightn't see this at the outset very clearly Mm. but I know for a fact newsrooms are getting cut young journalists aren't getting the opportunity that I got 20 years ago. That, you know, you maybe don't have the same amount of researchers or, or, or support networks coming into a newsroom. That impacts then quality of shows. This all has an impact on our local democracy. So the sooner this report gets out there, the sooner we can actually try and address actually funding these things properly uh, and making sure that we save local media in this country. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, uh, An issue of particular concern, obviously, to us in local media. But uh, as you said at the outset, I think it's an issue of concern uh, to everybody, uh, whether uh, we stop and think about it or not. It's uh, the local newspapers. It's the local radio station. It's what will be there in place if we don't continue to exist. Shane Castles, Fianna Fáil Senator and a member of the Oireachtas Committee on Media there. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'd say Deirdre and Kells is probably local radio's biggest fan. She texts in to the radio station many times every single day and she's saying it would be a disaster if they closed down local radio stations. Don't worry, Deirdre, we're not going anywhere yet, at least not for the meantime. Uh, some other comments coming to us. Uh, somebody else saying, Michael, how can you suggest that a man who is requesting responsible ownership of dogs is a crank? What a ridiculous suggestion. I couldn't agree with you more. I did ask him if he was a crank, uh, but uh, I 
try to clarify that the reason I was asking him that was that any time anybody gives out about dogs, they're called cranks. Uh, I completely agree with you and thank you indeed uh, for strengthening my argument if it was at all muddy. Uh, Jerry in Wilkinstown in touch saying, ask them why the farmers don't fence their fields properly or do they think that it's too much bother or a waste of time? I see sheep out on roads all of the time. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you indeed. Uh, I don't think uh, that makes it right for dogs to go in and slaughter them. Uh, now, we heard Senator Shane Castles uh, talking a, a moment ago about uh, people who get their news off the internet, that fake news uh, that the likes of Donald Trump supporters get off the internet, uh, which led them to thinking all sorts of mad things are actually true, uh, that uh, Donald Trump lost the election and all of that, and that that resulted in a riot on Capitol Hill a year ago yesterday. And yesterday, to commemorate the 6th of January 2020, the President of America, Joe Biden, uh, had this to say. One year ago today, in this sacred place, democracy was attacked, simply attacked. The will of the people was under assault. The Constitution, our Constitution, faced the gravest of threats. Outnumbered in the face of a brutal attack, the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the National Guard, and other brave law enforcement officials saved the rule of law. Our democracy held. We, the people, endured. We, the people, prevailed. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. They failed. They failed. But we all remember, don't we? We probably never forget how hard they tried. A mob breaking windows, kicking in doors, breaching the Capitol. American flags on poles being used as weapons, as spears. Fire stingers being thrown at the heads of police officers. A crowd that professes their love for law enforcement assaulted those police officers, dragged them, sprayed them, stomped on them. Over 140 police officers were injured. We all heard the police officers who were there that day testify to what happened. One officer called it, quote, a mid- medieval battle and that he was more afraid that day than he was fighting the war in Iraq. They've repeatedly asked since that day, how dare anyone, anyone, diminish, belittle, or deny the hell they were put through? We saw with our own eyes, rioters menaced these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. What did we not see? We didn't see a former president who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television and doing nothing for hours. 
President Joe Biden didn't mince his words. It really was a a remarkable speech. His criticism of his predecessor, Donald Trump, was unprecedented. Effectively, he said, Trump was responsible for inciting a riot, an attack on democracy. Trump was not just a sore loser, but a liar who convinced a mob he had won an election that he had clearly lost. So let's speak plainly about what happened in 2020. Even before the first ballot was cast, the former president was preemptively sowing doubt about the election results. <clears throat> he built his lie over months. It wasn't based on any facts. He was just looking for an excuse, a pretext to cover for the truth. He's not just a former president. He's a defeated former president. Defeated by a margin of over 7 million of your votes in a full and free and fair election. There is simply zero proof the election results are inaccurate. In fact, in every venue where evidence had to be produced, an oath to tell the truth had to be taken, the former president failed to make his case. Just think about it. Donald Trump was expected to speak yesterday. He didn't. President Joe Biden had this message for Mr. Trump. You can't love your country only when you win. You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Those who storm this Capitol and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy. They didn't come here out of patriotism or principle. They came here in rage, not in service of America, but rather in service of one man. Those who incited the mob, the real plotters who were desperate to deny the certification of this election and defy the will of the voters. But their plot was foiled. It's a mad world we're living in, isn't it? That's uh, the President of America, Joe Biden. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to an old bugbearer, certainly for anybody uh, who uses a wheelchair and uh, can't get past a car that has been parked up on the footpath. Let's speak to John Fulham, who's a public engagement manager with the Irish Wheelchair Association. Good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We're hearing that the fines for parking on a footpath or a cycle lane or a bus lane is to double to €80 from next month. What do you make of this? Morning, Michael, and thanks for the chance to come on and talk about it. I welcome it in 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 brief. Um, I think you know anything that that is brought in that can 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 encourage change in behaviour and that can can work to address this problem is a welcome initiative. That's um, the short answer. I take it there's a longer answer, is there? There is, and and it's it's welcome, but it, it's welcome and it comes with a caveat. And that caveat is that the, the importance of, of this is the implementation. It's already illegal to um, park on a footpath, but um, that, that, that doesn't seem to have um, impacted on people's willingness to do so. So I think yeah, it's, it's welcome because this is the type of thing that influences and changes behaviour. Um, and, and what's key to it is the fact that, that people are fined and, that, the, and that, that it is levied on people. And that's the key to the whole success. 
Uh, it's certainly true to say that uh, if it's not acceptable, uh, it's certainly expected that people will park on the footpath uh, on certain streets because it happens all of the time. Absolutely, it happens. It's, it's a, an occurrence that, that people like myself, I'm a wheelchair user, um, but people with limited mobility, vision impaired people, mums and dads with buggies, we encounter it all the time. And what the, it's, it's inconsiderate behaviour and thoughtless behaviour on behalf of people. But what they don't realise is that their selfish behaviour is putting people at risk. Because um, the only other option is to stay there and wait till the blockage becomes free. But if you have the ability to go out on the road, that's your only alternative option. And certainly, the, the, for, for me as a wheelchair user, that option isn't always there, but it's dangerous. Um, to do so as a parent, I'm, I'm also a parent of a, of a five-year-old, so I've had over time the experience of pushing a buggy and coming across this problem. Now, as a parent, you don't want to bring your child onto a busy road. There's a risk involved with that. So people's behaviour is putting people at risk, but there seems to be an intense ignorance or willingness to, to ignore that. So I, I, that's why I really mm. do welcome the government's initiative, but that's why I, oftentimes when you come across these situations, you're, you're faced with that there's nothing done about it. The, the, the enforcement appears to have been low, and I don't know the reasons for that. But most certainly, um, if it, it's frustrating when you see it happening and that nothing takes, is done about it. So, mm. um, And what could be done in addition to it? I mean, it's a, a lot of money, €80 Euro for the privilege of parking on the footpath or having a, a wheel or two on the footpath. That's a, a lot of money. It might make people think twice. Uh, that's if it's enforced and they end up paying the fine. Uh, but what can be done in addition to increasing that fine? Okay, and I suppose that one of the one of the ideas which I really welcomed this this morning, just to even be spoken about, was that somebody had suggested maybe being able to take a photograph and submit that to the authorities for their enforcement. So you know, so to be able to retrospectively do that, I don't know how legal that would be in the current framework, but I think that's a really positive idea hmm. um, and something worth exploring. And um, you can't you can't argue with the reg plate. You can't argue no. with the photograph, but there is a, a chance that photographs can be doctored as well. Yeah, there is a legality mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it, I think it's worth exploring the concept. I also feel though that the, the, it's not just cars; it's wheelie bins, it's it's badly parked bicycles and e-scooters, it's it's it's, it's billboards. It's, there's a number of things, and it, it's the, the responsibility for this ultimately is everybody. It's not just mm-hmm. the Gardaí. It, it shouldn't really come down to the fact that it has to be enforced because the message it's sending out to the, to these people is you're not worthy of inclusion or thought in our world. And for someone who's who's got a disability, that's, that's a message that, that's subconsciously reinforced to us all the time. So I think there's a, there's a, a much broader social responsibility and awareness piece that we need to right. need to tackle just about behaviour and I don't want to get mm. um, I suppose I don't want to, to become unrealistic on what we can achieve but mm. I think that generally in, in terms of society we, we've got to start taking more responsibility for our, for our own actions and that's the way you, you, you'd feel that's the perception that wheelchair users have uh, that they're not worthy of somebody else's thought I mean I think it's probably true to say that people don't think uh, that they're going to cause these problems, but uh, you feel that you're not worthy of that thought. Well, they they don't think, but they don't. Uh, the, the it's it's the same with any form of discrimination or or exclusion. Mm. 
um, you don't think, but that that think that as a as a build up of of, of examples that suddenly is reinforcing to people that they're not worthy of that thought. God, so right, like, yeah. you know, and that is a message that that that's being put out there. So we we mm. we need to tackle that as well. Inten- intentional or otherwise, uh, uh, yeah. And uh, it's not yeah, just people with yeah. disabilities. There's, as mm. I say, there are parents with buggies. There, yeah. mm-hmm. it's across all the spectrum. Talk to me about the wheelie bins. Uh, is the problem there with the wheelie bin companies because we all have to put our bins out if we want them to be collected? It, 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 is the problem where they're left after they've been emptied? Not necessarily, no. And oh. I don't think it would be fair to put the, the, the onus of responsibility back on, on, on the bin companies. We put our bins out to be collected, but we need to take our bins in when they've been collected. Um, and, but also, there's, there's, I suppose when people put them out, it's just asking them to be aware that just don't leave them in the middle of the footpath. Put them out to the edge. Um, and that helps the bin companies and it helps everybody else on the thoroughfare. Um, and other other examples are where, the, you know, the, the larger bins. Mm. So it would be the more business-based ones yeah. that, they're, that they're discarded and left permanently on the footpaths. And that's just really, we need to find an alternative way to, to that because it's blocking it for everybody. Mm. Um, so there, there, there are a number of things. That, again, there's the thought, but maybe, you know, if businesses are saying, well, we've nowhere to put them, that maybe there, there needs to be some discussion with the local authority around that. Okay. Uh, uh, what about uh, the traffic wardens? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do they do enough in terms of a wheel or two or a full car on the footpath? You know, I don't think it's a question of whether they do enough. I would say the question is probably whether there's enough of them to do mm. enough. Yeah. Um, and that's a different question. So I don't know. what Enforcement has been low, relatively, mm. in my personal opinion, from what I've seen. And I, I take it that you'd, you'd find there's less of a problem in the town than there is out in the estates. That's an interesting question. I, I, I would make an assumption to say that there is. Traffic wardens don't go out in the estates. Mm. But if you're looking at, a, at estates, perhaps people park out on the grass verges rather than in on the footpath. It's a generalisation. But it, I would say the problem exists in both. And back to the question is is the traffic wardens. I, I would suggest that there's probably a manpower issue, that there's probably so much to do and not enough people to do it. And it becomes down, it comes down to probably the, the economics of, of the local authorities. But mm. to be to I, I just think that there, there there definitely needs to be enforcement, however that takes place. Okay, somebody asking about people parking in disabled spaces. Uh, I don't need to get you started on that. No, it's the same principle. Mm. It's 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 again a disregard, and part of it is so that people understand the reason why this is impacting people. And as the disabled drivers' parking spaces, they're often required so that someone has enough space to be able to open their car door. And, and get their chair out of the car or get the chair out of the back of the car. So there's a very good logical reason for people with mobility issues is that they can't travel the distance to the shop. And it's, it's not a special privilege that people are looking for. They're, they're, they're actually looking just to, to be treated as an equal and, and an accommodation. And I think if people start understanding that more, um, that it'll help the cause. But there, I can tell you now that there is just belligerence as well and inconsiderate behaviour. People get very aggressive when you mm. tackle them about parking and disabled drivers. It seems to be the same with everything these yeah. days, John. All right, listen, I have to yeah. leave it there. Thanks, though. I'm sorry I'm out of time, but thank you uh, for joining us. Good to talk to you. John Fulham, Pul- Public Engagement Manager with the Irish Wheelchair Association. That's it for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme, Monday morning, 9am LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.